Let's open our Bibles then to Jeremiah chapter 18. We're studying through this marvelous Old Testament prophet, sharing in his struggles and learning from his trials. Chapter 18, verses 1 through 17, that's going to be our text. Certainly will, uh, welcome to follow along on an electronic device or a tablet, just uh, set it to stun so that it doesn't go off during the study, then I have to make fun of you. Chuck Smith sent out a directive. He said, any phones go off, you have to make fun of those people. And then what happens is then you guys, you think it's so funny, now those of you who have my number, you start calling me. My phone is off. The topic we're going to find here in this text, God likens his relationship with the nation of Israel to that of a potter working with hardened clay. The title of our message, Holy Potter and the Deathly Hardening. <laughs> I won't quit my day job, but I like that one. Let's pray. Father, you, we appreciate that we can approach your text with joy and open up our hearts to it, Lord, knowing that you're going to talk to us through it, with it. We want to have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church, our church, and each of us individually as your church, as your temple on earth. A lot of great stuff here this morning, Lord, in this familiar text. I pray that the familiarity with it would... Um, breed an excitement to see things that are old and new, remembrances, Lord, of things we've already learned that are precious and new things, Lord, that we hadn't seen before by the ministry of your spirit. And Lord, it's intended to bring comfort and encouragement to some to convict and convince of righteousness. Whatever you want to do with your word, Lord, we pray that you would have your way. Reach into us, Lord. Divide between the soul and the spirit as only you can do. And we pray it in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. As most of you know, I'm an absolute loser when it comes to home repairs. Case in point, several summers ago, I drained our swimming pool in order to fix an ugly crack on the bottom. It's relatively easy. It's something even I can do unless you choose the quick drying patch plaster as opposed to the normal drying plaster. That stuff starts to dry the minute you leave the store. I mean, you can't even get it out of the can and it's starting to harden. And it's just, it's just, I finished the repair. Of course, it looks worse than the crack did. I can only say that there's no more crack there, but it's, it's ugly. And we're gonna witness a materials problem in our text this morning. Jeremiah watches while a potter is molding and shaping clay on his wheel the clay is found to be marred, and as a result, the potter cannot mold and shape it as he originally intended. God told Jeremiah that Israel in particular and all nations in general are like clay and that he is the sovereign God and he's the potter. He has a plan, he has a purpose, he has a program for the nations of the world and the nation of Israel, but they can turn from him, causing him to change his immediate dealings with them. The figure of the potter and the clay has its first application to nations, but it is also used of individuals in the Bible. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, believers in Jesus Christ are called earthen vessels or the more poetic jars of clay. We are elsewhere described as capable of being either vessels of honor or vessels of dishonor. 
The implication is that God, the master potter and craftsman, is working on us with a plan, a purpose, and a program in mind, but that we can turn from him. When we turn from him, it causes him to change his immediate dealings with us. While we contemplate the work of the potter, we're going to have a wonderful word of encouragement to keep in mind. It's in verse 4 where we read, so he made it again into another vessel as it seemed good to the potter to make. God continues to work on you despite rebellion that he may find in you. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, turn to God and he will make you again. Number two, turn from God and he must break you in the end. Verses one through 10, take a look at turning to God. When you get saved, God begins a work in you that he promises to see through to its completion. His work is to conform you into the image of Jesus Christ to make you like Jesus. He says, in fact, that after you are saved, it is something he has predestined you to become. Romans 8, 29. In 1 John 3, 2, we are likewise promised it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we'll be like him. We will see him as he is. And so he has begun a good work in you and he will perform it until the day of Christ Jesus. You're saved and he works in you and on you and through you to make you more like his son, Jesus Christ. It is God's plan, his purpose, and his program for us to become like Jesus. Along the way, we are not always as cooperative as we could be. Some of us are downright uncooperative. We go our own ways and against God's way. We are marred clay in his hands. It might be good to ask ourselves as we work through these verses, not if we are being uncooperative with the master potter, but where we are not cooperating and therefore need to turn back to him. Because as we'll see in a few minutes, all of us are marred clay to a certain extent. And so it's not, Lord, you know, show me if I am not totally 100% cooperating with you, but where is it? that I can cooperate with you more. And so in verse one, the word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, arise and go down to the potter's house and there I will cause you to hear my words. The potter's equipment was simple. It consisted of two stone discs placed horizontally, joined by a vertical shaft. The lower disc would be spun using the feet. The other disc at waist level had on it the clay for the potter's hands to shape. Jeremiah would have been familiar with this method of making pottery, and we could go so far as to say that he knew the potter personally because it was the village of Anathoth where he lived. Still, God told him to go down to the potter's house. That is where he intended to speak to Jeremiah. You can meet with God anywhere, anytime. But if he tells you to go somewhere, then you should do it. Because that is where he is determined to speak to you in ways that will further his work in you. And so I guess the point I'm making is Jeremiah knew the pottery, knew all about making pottery. This wasn't like a kindergarten field trip. It was a common thing in their culture. His house would have been full of pottery vessels that he had bought at the potter's house. And yet God said, I want you to go down and actually see the potter working on the clay And there I will speak with you. Actually, God didn't even tell him he was going to speak with him. He just told him to go down there, but Jeremiah understood what was going to take place. You can meet with God anywhere and at any time, but if he tells you to go somewhere, then do it because that's where he has determined to speak to you. Since we're all here, we can use going to church as our example. Do you have to go to church to hear from the Lord? 
The answer to that is no. You can hear from the Lord anywhere, anytime. But God has told us in his word to attend church, to fellowship with other believers as often as we possibly can. And we should do it because that's where God has determined to speak to us and with us in very special ways. So if you want to hear from the Lord, you need to go where the Lord has directed you to go. Verse 3, I went down to the potter's house and there he was making something at the wheel. And the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hands of the potter. So he made it again into another vessel as it seemed good to the potter to make. The clay was marred. You're not told the precise problem, only that the clay presented a difficulty that made it unfit for the particular vessel that the potter originally had in mind. I wonder how long Jeremiah stood there watching before God gave him the upcoming application. He said, go, watch the potter. How long, really, we don't know, but he, he would have had to watch him for a little while. And this would add to what we just said. Not only do you have to go where God wants to speak with you, but sometimes you have to wait on the Lord. We are an impatient people. We say, okay, I'm here. Give me the insight. Give me the wisdom. Give me the revelation that you've called me here to to see. And and a lot of times God, just quite honestly, he makes you wait. He, He wants you to wait on him. He wants to see how willing you are to receive these precious truths that he entrusts us with as uh, his earthen vessels, as it were. And so wait on the Lord. Go where the Lord wants you to go and wait uh, wait on him there. Verse five, then the word of the Lord came to me saying, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter, says the Lord? Look, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel." Now, these words are all too often taken out of their original context, and they're offered as a proof text that God has cast aside Israel as an unusable lump of clay and replaced her with the church. We looked at this in our study in Romans in chapter 9. There's a passage where Paul quotes from this, and a lot of people say, well, there it is. God, you know, found Israel an unusable lump of clay, and so he's through with them, and now the new lump of clay Uh, is the Gentiles, it's the church of Jesus Christ. And then they also erroneously apply it to individuals saying God casts aside whoever he wills to eternal damnation because after all, he's the potter and we're but useless clay anyway. So if he wants to mold a vessel to destruction, that's his business and damn that person to hell. If he wants to mold a vessel to honor and salvation, that's his business. Now, uh, you need to always read verse six in context with verses seven through 10. We must only understand the illustration of the potter and the clay by hearing God's own commentary in these verses. And here it is, verse seven. He says, remember he's saying, Jeremiah, I am like that potter working with clay. He says, the instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to pluck up, to pull down and to destroy it, if that nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I thought to bring upon it. And the instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to build and to plant it, if it does evil in my sight so that it does not obey my voice, I will relent concerning the good with which I said I would benefit it. Now, any thinking person reading that comes to the exact opposite conclusion of some leading theologians. It would seem that God says, I am going to see what a nation does in response to my word 
and with my glory, and then I will act accordingly. If they obey me, I will bless them. If they disobey me, I will judge them. And so it's contingent upon what people do with their free choices. It's the exact opposite of the normal teaching you get from this. With regards to nations, God has made his response contingent upon our choices. And this this is what I call practical theology because we all believe this. At some point in your prayer life, you have prayed for the United States of America. As a thinking Christian, as a compassionate human being, you've understood that our nation is far from being under God that the only thing really probably saving our nation from real judgment is the fact that Christians exist in our nation, but our nation is far from a godly nation in terms of its actual behavior. And we pray for our nation, believing what? That revival can come and that God will avert pending judgment and that we will return to be a, a wonderful beacon of the gospel. And so this is what we all believe And this is what God says. He goes, I want to bless nations like the United States. And when they obey me, I will. And when they disobey me, I can't. Now, God had and he has a plan for the nation of Israel. In a nutshell, it was for them to bring the Savior into the world and to ultimately establish the kingdom of God on the earth prior to the consummation of this current creation and the creation of a new heavens and a new earth. Along the way, the Jews were to reveal the glory of God to the surrounding Gentile nations so that they too would be saved. That's God's plan for Israel as a nation. Israel turned away from God time after time after time. The book of Judges is a good little picture of that. They would turn away and backslide. God would raise up a judge. They would come back to him. They would turn away and backslide. God would raise up a judge over and over again. These 6th century Jews to whom Jeremiah was sent to minister, they were gross idolaters who had turned away from the revival under Josiah to, uh, to walk in their own evil ways. Uh, this is all instructive in light of our intellectual questions about God's sovereignty and man's free will. A lot of people argue about this and have very distinct opinions about it. These verses absolutely teach God most definitely grants free will. He says that the Jews and any other nation can choose to either freely turn from evil or to freely do evil and not obey his voice. It's their choice. At the same time, we can look back over the course of history and see that God remains sovereign over his specific plan, his purpose, and his program. For example, the nation of Judah continued to turn from him, so instead of continuing to bless them, God brought the Babylonian captivity upon them. It would discipline them to repentance so that at least for a time they would turn back to him. In returning back to him, the Jews got back on the prophetic track God had outlined, that of bringing the Savior into the world. And so God gave them free will. He dealt with them accordingly, but he was also sovereign in the sense of keeping his plan on track. God, therefore, describes himself as granting us free will, real, honest-to-goodness free will, while acting providentially to remain in ultimate control of his universe. Then-candidate Obama made famous this statement, that's above my pay grade. Do you remember that? We make fun of it now. Uh, it's used to talk about something that you, you, know, you really can't give an answer to. I'm not claiming to understand to have resolved the deep issues of 
the theological universe. But in very down-to-earth terms, the Lord is coming to resurrect and rapture his church. It absolutely will be followed by the seven-year great tribulation, which will absolutely be followed by the second coming of Jesus Christ with his church to establish the kingdom of God on the earth for a thousand years. Then there will be a final judgment of non-believers. There will be a literal hell and there will be a glorious heaven. But along the way, I can freely choose to turn to God or from God. I can cooperate with his work to make me more like Jesus or I can shipwreck my life. That is my free choice. For his part, God reacts according to his nature in order to warn me when I'm getting off course and to win back my heart. Because we are in these bodies of flesh in a world system in which Satan is said to be the ruler, all of us turn from God. It can be in very slight, small ways, or it can be a complete meltdown into a total backslide. When that is true of you, small ways, large ways, the word that you can be sure of in this text is that God can make you again. Some of you have experienced this. We all experience it without realizing it in not to minimize sin or maximize other sins, but you know, people who are just walking with the Lord and you get, you know, you see something you shouldn't see, you do something you shouldn't do, and you have these temporary course corrections, you know, you're, you, you don't really think in these huge terms, but the, it's the same thing in a smaller version, but some of you have totally backslidden in your Christian walk. You did something that was just awful. It was evil. You, you went away from the Lord for, for a, a certain period of time. And then you returned to the Lord and you found that God was working with you and on you the entire time to make you again. He, you were clay in his hands and he was molding and shaping you, filling out the promise that he made to you to conform you into the image of Jesus Christ. And you marred that process in some way. God didn't throw you off the wheel. He continued to mold and shape and he made you again into the Christian that you are today. Maybe you're going through a time when you are being affected by someone else who is making shipwreck of their life. That happens. Over the years, I've talked to many husbands and wives, too many. And I've had to look at the non-offending spouse and, and assure them that God can make you again. That this is a tragedy, this is terrible, this shouldn't be happening, but this is what the clay is handing to the potter at this time. God can nevertheless make you again. His work in your life is not finished, it is not over. He is the master potter, you are the clay. At the potter's house, Jeremiah learned that the potter did not abandon the clay. He worked with it. He worked on it to create something from it despite its marred condition. I mentioned earlier, and it's true, God only works with marred clay. He formed Adam from the earth, the clay of the earth, but ever since Adam sinned, every lump of clay that has ever been on his wheel, every human being, has been marred by inherited sin. And as I said, even though you're born again, if you are today, 
You're still in this body of flesh and and it's marred. It's not perfect. It never will be. And you never will be until you are actually with the Lord. and, And so we, by definition, offer the Lord marred clay, but he continues to work with us. It's better to cooperate because he's more easily able to make you like Christ. That's the work that he's about. What do you have to do for God to make you again on a daily basis or maybe you've totally backslidden, whatever it is? You have only to be like clay that easily yields itself to the potter's masterful touch. Be that lump of clay that isn't presenting God with difficulties, with a divided heart, with uh, the dictates of its own heart, with your own will rather than his. Just be uh, yielding to the Lord. And let him mold and shape you according to his desire. Now, if you turn from God, he will break you in the end. Verses 11 through 17. The remaining text records the insane reaction of the Jews to God's warnings. Verse 11. Now, therefore, speak to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am fashioning a disaster and devising a plan against you. Return now everyone from his evil way. Make your ways and your doings good. Do you understand? In light of what we've just read, God says, if a nation will turn to me, I will bless them. And he's saying, now Israel, you've turned away from me. Turn back to me and everything will be fine. But if you don't, I'm devising a disaster against you. I'm going to have to deal with you in a completely different manner than I want to deal with you because I'm working out my plan and my program. I am going to have to bring you into a captivity with Babylon to break you of this idolatry. And so this is the word of God. It was simple and straightforward. It didn't mince words. It may have sounded harsh, but only if you weren't really listening because in it is an invitation to return to God. When somebody is in sin, everything sounds harsh to them. Oh, you're judging me. Oh, that's a guilt trip. It might just be the truth. And so God's just saying, look, you guys are sinning. I'm gonna have to judge you unless you repent. Now, how did they respond? This actually, I, it's hard for me to capture the emotion in this verse because it's so, it's astonishing what they say. They said, that is hopeless. We will walk according to our own plans and we will everyone obey the dictates of his evil heart. So they said, the people that were sinning, they said, not God. There was no hope that they would turn to God. So God through Jeremiah said, turn to me. I will relent of judgment. They said, well, then it's hopeless. Why? Because we're going to walk according to the dictates of our own evil heart. We don't really care to do what God says. And if God is going to judge us for that, then it's hopeless because we're not going to change. What grips me is that even though it seemed hopeless, even though they respond this way to God, and even though that for most of these particular Jews it remained hopeless, God believed his love and long-suffering could yet reach them. He was still trying to reach them with these uh, metaphors and illustrations and sermons from Jeremiah. And as you know, if you've been here for our studies, 40 years God tried to reach these people through the ministry of Jeremiah. 
For 40 years, he reached out to them, even though their attitude was, if you're expecting me to repent, you've got a long wait because we like what we're doing right now and we're gonna continue to do it. Next, we get a look at the stupidity then of sin, verse 13 through 15. Therefore, thus says the Lord, ask now among the Gentiles who has heard such things. In other words, unbelieving Gentiles don't even do stuff this bad. He says, the virgin of Israel has done a very horrible thing. Will a man leave the snow water of Lebanon, which comes from the rock of the field? Will the cold flowing waters be forsaken for strange waters? Because my people have forgotten me, they have burned incense to worthless idols, and they have caused themselves to stumble in their ways from the ancient paths to walk in pathways and not on a highway. And so God says, here's a couple of astonishing, stupid things, and he gives two pictures. One, he compares his chosen nation to a virgin betrothed to him in a pure relationship who decides instead to become the promiscuous partner of dead, worthless idols. And then he says, his people are like thirsty individuals who have a an unending supply of the freshest, most amazing water and they think, I'm gonna give that up to go lick puddles of rainwater by the side of the road. That's what sin looks like from God's point of view. And it, that's what it looks like from our point of view until we get into it and then all of a sudden, promiscuity and puddles look really good. This would be like, I, if you wanted a modern version of the Bible, it'd be like you going to Chili's this afternoon and after you order your meal, they say, well, what would you like to drink? You say, I don't need a drink. I'm gonna go into the bathroom and lick out of the toilet. How about some Perrier? No, I don't need that. Twist of lime? You got toilets? Yeah. <laughs> They'll be great. That's what God says. He goes, even the Gentiles looked at the Jews and they said, what's up? What are you guys doing? It's crazy. We need to put a high priority on believing what God says in his word because believe me, we can talk ourselves into believing that promiscuity and the puddle are better for us. In life, we always find that short-term pleasures lead to long-term sorrow. Verse 16, says, I'll make their land desolate and a perpetual hissing. Everyone who passes by it will be astonished and shake his head. Every Gentile watching the nation of Judah they had eternity in his or her heart because the Bible tells us in Ecclesiastes that God has placed eternity in our hearts and quite simply that just means that we have a basic wiring as human beings that there is something greater than us that we call God and we're searching for that and we're empty without it. As far as Gentiles, they had a knowledge that there was a God from creation. They had an internal witness of conscience and whatever remained of the testimony of uh, individuals like you know, Enoch and Noah and stories that had come down to them. They're like Rahab in the book of Joshua when the children of Israel come into Jericho and they're scouting out Jericho and they find Rahab and she says, man, I know all about the God of Israel. The people here are terrified because they know that he is the living God. He is the real thing. And she was seeking the Lord and she, she was saved. And so Israel, they were surrounded by these Gentiles 
who had eternity in their hearts who were in a sense seeking the Lord or at least they had a knowledge of the Lord and that could have been filled in by Israel but Israel instead said, no, we wanna be like the Gentiles. Who needs the living God when you can have a rock idol because we can have sex in front of it and we can sacrifice our children in front of it and we can do all manner of sensual sin instead of living this kind of you know, pure life that God has us live. We'll be like the Gentiles. And the Gentiles said, no, we were hoping we could be like you because you seem to know something real. And it's a real tragedy. Verse 17, I will scatter them as with an east wind before the enemy. I will show them the back and not the face in the day of their calamity when they really needed the Lord in the sense when they wanted the Lord, when they would call out to the Lord during the Babylonian invasion, especially when the armies were coming in through and over the walls, God said, I have to turn around. I'm gonna turn my back to you. I'm gonna have to play this out. I've given you plenty of warning. One way or the other, he would accomplish his plan and his purpose and his program to bring the Savior As heinous as their sin was, it couldn't cancel out God's providence. Turn from God and he will break you in the end. Now, having said that, I can't know what it means in any particular specific case. If a person is backslidden, I don't know if God's gonna break them tomorrow or 10 years from now after they've sown a lot of grief and sorrow and sadness. In the New Testament, God sometimes allowed sickness and even death to come upon believers for their sin. Other times, it seemed like he was doing very little about it. Those things are above our pay grade. I know that God is always working to mold and shape us into the image of Jesus Christ, and especially when he finds us marred. But how long... And how, you know, how fast that wheel turns and how much pressure is applied and how long that uh, occurs, that's something that only the master potter knows. I only know God wants to mold and shape us into something far more beautiful than any of our own plans and the dictates of our evil hearts and that it's my choice to cooperate or not. I just have to believe God. And this is what... I love about having the word of God, don't you? Because there is a standard, there is an external standard of truth, of right, of wrong. So when I have some crazy wild thought about what I think is right or wrong, I can go to the Bible and God can tell me, yeah, Gene, you're wrong. Or I can argue with God. But at least I know that there is a truth, an absolute truth. I know that he can make all things work together for my good, even things that are certainly not good in and of themselves. As a master potter, he can work with marred clay that others would discard. Now, the, patch, uh, the plaster patch in my pool, as I mentioned, it's adequate but ugly. And I need to tell you that when God works on us, we are more than adequate and never ugly. So if you're, if you're needing to be made again or if you've been made again or if you're hoping that you know, in the future you will be made again, know that you're not gonna be like my swimming pool where people are gonna say, what kind of a vessel are you? You look like an ashtray with a hole in it or something, you know? Yeah, God intended to make me a goblet, but uh, you know, now I'm, I'm an ashtray. 
and I have a hole in it, so no. We sometimes have the idea that God can't make us into something beautiful, but he only makes beautiful things. And so if you need to be made again, then just get with the program. Yield yourself to God, let him make you again, and know that he only always makes all things beautiful in his time. Let's pray.